0: Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. On May 28, 1754, a terrible thing happened just south of where modern-day Pittsburgh is now located. It involved a young lieutenant colonel, George Washington, who was commanding a detachment of the Virginia militia. It also involved Joseph Coulon de Villiers de Jumonville, who was leading a small unit of 30-odd men. What happened there had terrible consequences in the British colonies, in the French territories of North America, and then around the world. With me today to talk about this event is Christopher Moore, one of the most popular historians in Canada. He's written over a dozen books. Some are on the illegal institutions of our country. Some are general histories of Canada. And I have two favorites, his 1867, How the Fathers Made a Deal, published by McClellan Stewart, and his Three Weeks in Quebec City, a book on the 1864 Quebec Conference, published by Alan Lane. Moore's also had a long-standing interest in the history of New France. Of course, he won the Governor General's Nonfiction Award for his Louisbourg Portraits, published by McClellan Stewart a long time ago, but also published a fascinating little book called Mathurin Brochu of New France, and he's written the New France chapters of the authoritative, illustrated history of Canada. Christopher, welcome to the mic. Great to be here, Patrice. Let's talk about that fateful morning of May 28, 1754. What happened when Washington and Jumonville Coulier, Joseph Coulon de Villiers, encountered each other. Well, we're deep
1: in the woods here. This is uh, southwestern Pennsylvania. It's very rugged. This is the Allegheny Mountains, deep valleys, steep hills, all woodland. And both these forces, both the Virginia forces, the British forces, if you like, and the New France forces, they're a long way from home. This is not country that they settled and controlled. they gradually kind of projecting their power into the Ohio River Valley. This is the headwaters of the the big Ohio River that runs down to the Mississippi. And they're small forces that are kind of groping through the woods, trying to find out where the other side is. Britain and France are rivals at this time, but there is no war being declared. So they're just gradually groping through the woods. And on the night of, I guess, May 23rd, uh, Coulomb de Villiers and his group of about 30 men camp for the night in a little glen, sheltered glen, just another day in their exploration of the territory. Washington understands he, he can't allow the French to get themselves too well established here. And he's also under pressure from his indigenous allies. There's a man with him called the Half King. He's called the Half King, because he's actually Seneca of the Six Nations Confederacy. But he's from a group of that confederacy that has migrated west into this territory, what's now Pennsylvania. And essentially, they've split off from the main Six Nations confederacy. And so they're seen as being not really a nation of the confederacy, but sort of like a half a nation. And so the English call him the half king because he's the leader of this sort of half nation. And that group, uh, sometimes called the Mingos, this uh, Seneca uh, Six Nations group, uh, live in this territory. It's their land and ground. They've sort of established that themselves in that territory. And they feel more threatened by the French moving in than they have by by the British. And so Tanagrisson, the the half-king, has begun working with George Washington, and he essentially says to George Washington you can't just leave these guys here. You got to get rid of them. We got to hit them. So Washington and his group of Virginia militia and Tenegrison and his indigenous forces surround this little glen where Jumonville and and his men are basically sleeping. And at dawn... They just open up with everything and it's a massacre. Several of it's them ugly. Are, several of them are killed instantly. In fact, by the traditions of indigenous warfare, the native warriors move in and kill all the wounded as soon as they begin to surrender because the battle is over as soon as it starts. So it's it's a humiliating setback for the forces of New France, and this is very rare because New France has a very effective military force, is very good at projecting its force into Mm. the woodlands like this, and they never lose. They never expect to lose against American militia. They don't take them seriously. Tell us about George Washington at this point. Who who is this guy? (laughs) Well, he's a remarkable man, as we know from his later history. He's very much of the slave-owning, planter aristocracy of Virginia, but he's become a surveyor. He's a trained surveyor Mm -hmm. at this point and Virginia is growing rapidly. They're always looking to expand new territory, and they're beginning to think about breaking through the mountains, the Allegheny Mountains, and getting into the Ohio Valley and all that rich land on the Mississippi, and who knows how far they can go. And Washington, as a surveyor, is a guy who's able to sort out routes through the mountains and that kind of thing, and he's interested essentially in Building an empire for Virginia beyond the mountains, mm-hmm. not being mm-hmm. trapped on the coast anymore. So, his initial interest is working with colonization companies that want to move settlers from Virginia further west. And of course, there's a military aspect to that because the French don't want them moving there right. and the First Nations don't want them moving there e- either. So he's, he's a young man. He's becoming a militia commander in Virginia and he's becoming a kind of political force because he's part of the expansion of Virginia.
0: Now, what about this Joseph Coulon de Villiers? Tell us
1: about him. Well, New France is a remarkable society for North America. It's a royal government. It's an autocratic government in New France. There are no representative or democratic institutions. The king sends a military officer to be the governor general of New France. And the hierarchy that commands New France is almost entirely military. And New France has effectively its own permanent regular army. They're called the the Compagnie Franche. And they're actually not part of the French regular army. They're part of the naval forces. So they're sometimes called marines. But they're a regular garrison force in New France. And their officer corps is essentially the aristocracy of New France. These These are men who Own seigneuries, they're landlords in New France. They come from the minor aristocracy of France, but most of them have lived in New France for generations by the 1750s. And fathers and sons and cousins and uncles are all officers of this force. And Jumonville, the commander of this little force, his father's an officer, all his brothers are officers, and in fact, the governor at one point says of this family, the family name is Coulon, he says, the Coulon family, they're terrific soldiers, there's hardly one of them that hasn't been killed in action in the royal service. <laughs> it's a badge of honor. Yeah, yeah you're not really a, an officer of the Company France until you're killed in action.
0: Yeah. Now, you've contributed an intriguing document to the findings blog, the findings blog on the Champlain Society, and it's entitled, The Liste du Sort du Parti de Monsieur de Villiers de Jumonville, and essentially, it's a a list of casualties, and I'm going to read it, uh, invite our listeners to look at the uh, the findings blog, but this is the list. It says tué, or killed, Jumonville, roussel de Québec, Caron de Québec, Charles Bois de Pointe-Claire, Jérôme de la Prairie, L'Enfant de Montréal, Paris de Millil, Languedoc de Boucherville, Martin de Boucherville, and mysteriously, La Batterie Tambour. So, these are family names of the soldiers that have been killed and their towns. Pointe-Lar, La Prairie, Montréal, Boucherville. There's also a list of people who were taken prisoner. Who are these people? Well, that's what really
1: interested me. I was asked to go to a to a, a seminar at Jumonville. There's now a conference center there, and there was a conference on the Seven Years' War and the War of the Conquest, with the, what the Americans often call the French and Indians' War. And I was asked to talk about... Uh, new com- non-combatants in the, in the Seven Years' War, because they cover a whole lot of different topics. And I began thinking about non-combatants in New France, and I brought this list along as an illustration, because even though New France has this regular army of troops who are permanently garrisoned in Montreal and Quebec mm-hmm. and their various forts along the frontier, and they have this elite of uh, colonial aristocracy who are the officer corps of this army, Almost all the men who are killed or taken prisoner at Jumonville, they come from small farming communities around, mostly around Montreal. They come from Millil, or they come from Varennes, Mm. or they come from Boucherville, which are, some of them are in the suburbs of Montreal now. Some of them are down the Richelieu Valley, and a couple of them are a little bit further away. There's a couple from near Quebec City. But essentially, they look like they're civilians. They've been conscripted? Essentially, they'd been conscripted, and this was very much the way that New France operated. There was an effective military militia organization throughout the colony of New France, all along the St. Lawrence River. Every little community had its regular militia, and if a war was declared or there was a military emergency, the governor says, it's wonderful, I just have to send an officer to take charge and, and away they go they don't get paid they don't have any option about it they just uh, all the able bodied men of of the community okay you're you're on active duty now in the militia and away you go
0: and these poor guys i mean, i'm assuming they're they're either they're teenagers or in their 20s sent out on a on an expedition to stake out maybe what might eventually become Duquesne in where where Pittsburgh is now. But your point is that this list gives us a real insight into the structures of New France. I mean, you're talking about a society that is remarkably military and yet peasant. It's a peasant society. How do you reconcile? What, what is the image of New France that you're documenting here for us? Well, it is the
1: 17th and 18th century largely a rural agricultural society where most of the people live out on a farm, small family farms. Uh, there wasn't a huge export market for any of their crops. So subsistence they, farming, they, yeah. they They fed the Montreal and Quebec City, and it yeah. was really kind of subsistence farming. Yeah. And, a, and a chunk of their rent or a chunk of their crops, they had to hand over to the landlord, to the seigneur, to, to support him. So it's a tenant society. They don't actually even own their own land, even though they pass it down from generation to generation.
0: It's a weird thing, isn't it? I mean, it's it's semi-segurial.
1: It's very familiar... In Europe, this is the way everybody exists. In Europe, England is all great landlords with tenant farmers. France is all lords with with peasant tenants on their estates and that kind of thing. But mostly, that did not translate into North America. There aren't there weren't that many societies. There were great landlords in the Hudson Valley. the The Dutch uh, mm-hmm. set up uh, farms on that basis, mm-hmm. and of course, the big tobacco plantations were run by slaves rather than rather than tenants. But yeah. essentially, it was again a kind of owner and owner and servant relationship. So not completely unknown, but mostly we think of North America as being kind of modern and commercial and there for trade and profit and their shipping crops to the rest of the world. New France was not so much like that. And in fact, the one big export, as we famously know, of New France was furs, was beaver furs. And I think the reason why these men found themselves out on the far frontier, deep in the woods, about to face off against, uh, against the enemy, uh, was a probably quite a few of them had served in the fur trade, which meant they were used to paddling canoes, living in the wilderness. Uh, the coureurs de bois. Coureurs de bois, practically. Yeah. And so they knew about living in the wilderness for long periods of time. They knew about relations with First Nations people. They knew about feeding themselves out on remote rivers, finding their way around. And that's what made them good soldiers. So that here right up at the sharp end when the French forces, the forces of New France are groping forward in the mm-hmm. remote hills of the foothills of the Ohio, or the headwaters of the Ohio River, trying to find out where the enemy is and if they're going to go to war with them. They're actually not using the regular troops who've been sent out in France to garrison the, the forts here, there and everywhere. They're using essentially civilian militiamen who most of the time probably live on a farm and come from farming families and yet they have this Voyageur experience, and so they know the woods consummately, and that's what makes them an elite force. The governor says, "Boy, with this elite of Canadians that Jumonville had with them, if he'd known he was going to be attacked, there's no—he'd have given the Americans a flattening." He says, "Well,
0: we'll get to that in a second yeah. because George Washington's going to pay for this." But I, I want to come back to the the Society of New France. I mean, you get the impression that it is remarkably military, isn't it? That the French—they're constantly at war. There's always a tension, whether it's with the Iroquois or with the expanding British Empire. You get the sense that French Canadian society along the St. is remarkably military, which is a different impression than what we normally have of New France. It's a real contrast between this
1: bucolic sort of life on a behind a plow on a little a little farm on the on the banks of the St. Lawrence, by Trois Rivieres or Boucherville or somewhere along mm-hmm. the river there. And yet at the same time, New France is essentially constantly on the alert, not not all the time, but frequently through the whole long history of New France. Mm-hmm. They're in conflict with indigenous nations, or they're in conflict with New England, or they're in conflict with Virginia, or a British invasion fleet is threatening to come up the river. And... As a result, they have to be a military society. And, and they are, at the same time as they are, this kind of rural farming society. They're very effectively organized militarily. Yeah?
0: And they're tied by various duties, aren't they? I mean, if you belong to a seigneurie and I use the word belong in quotation marks, I should say. Um, I mean, you do have duties to the seigneur, but these are duties that are really for the common good, repairing roads, doing the kind of things that we, we've given to government now, but ensuring that the public good is looked after. But that duty also carried a military component and that you were, if you were able-bodied, a subject to conscription, subject to expeditions of some sort. Uh, again, as the French Empire is probing its fingers all through the uh, the North American continent to further the fur trade, obviously, I think it's a great point, but also to establish its military. You've raised the indigenous component. I mean, the Americans call this the French-Indian War. Everywhere else, it's called the uh, the Seven-Year War although there are various names for it depending on where what country you're in. I uh, will talk about that in a second. But tell me about the aboriginal component here. This is not a united people on this issue. In the 1750s, this area here, if you think of Pittsburgh,
1: western Pennsylvania, the Allegheny Mountains that run down in there, west a bit is the headwaters of the Mississippi River, that whole area has been called the middle ground because by this time, The English colonies have been well-developed all along the seaboard. The 13 colonies later become the United States. New France has been there for more than a century, big French population. Both groups have been sending fur traders and military expeditions and such way up all the rivers and across the mountain passes into the interior. So it's not like the First Nations in this area are unaware or not used to dealing with Europeans. And so there's been lots of upheaval in this area. Tribes and nations have reorganized themselves. They've moved around. They've made alliances with each other. They've also made trade and sometimes military alliances either with the Americans or with the French.
0: And if you pick one, you end up being against the other. Um, so we have the Iroquois, which are settled mostly in what we call New York State today, yeah. south of the St. Lawrence, south of Lake Ontario. These are This is the Iroquois Confederacy. Yeah, and the
1: Iroquois, the Six Nations, mostly in the Finger Lakes area of what's now New York State, as you say, Mm -hmm. they're an agricultural people. They produce tremendous amounts of corn and Mm -hmm. other things too. But they have huge fields producing them large amounts of food, and they live in substantial towns of ten thousand or so, often. Mm -hmm. So they're a big population, relatively stable and with a, a fairly sophisticated level of government. And mm-hmm. so they've always been a major military power among the First Nations of the area. A lot of their neighbors, particularly in the hill country, are more involved in hunting and gathering. They'll do some farming, but not so much. Mm-hmm. They're a little more, they follow a seasonal round among different areas. So the the Six Nations have a bigger population they have a sort of more organized and in being able to send out large war parties and such. And so they've controlled a fair amount of the kind of trade and diplomacy in this area for a long time. But all these groups are really concerned about the Europeans that continue to press westward. And the British are pressing westward faster. That New France is a very New France has only sixty thousand people when there's over there's over a million in the thirteen colonies.
0: It's a big difference, isn't it? But the French are still creeping creeping into the Ohio Valley, as you're saying, yeah. encroaching. More and more on the territory of the Iroquois, the Mingo, mm-hmm. and caught in there is the Americans that are also pressing for their own interests. On the French side, you also have the Algonquin, but this this goes back, gosh, this goes back to the early 1600s. It I mean does, that division yeah. between yeah. Iroquois and Huron, yeah. uh, Algonquin, is persisting through these events, and it all comes together again that morning, that very early morning when the French are surprised in 1758. Now I said that George Washington does not leave unscathed. What happens to him? Yeah.
1: Well, there's this sharp conflict in at the end of May in 1754. Uh, Jumonville, the, the commander, is killed. Several of his men are killed, and the others are all taken prisoner, except one who escapes and rushes back to the French forces. Washington also sort of recoils back a little bit. He retreats to a place called Fort Necessity, not too far away, the sort of furthest outpost of the of Virginia and British uh, forces in this area and he sits there. His his men are all on a, they're, they're paid militiamen, and they then they sign up for a term of duty, and their term is coming to an end. They all want to go home soon, mm-hmm. and they're entitled to. So he's in a difficult spot, and in just a couple of months, the French, who have moved, have used this military power that New France has developed over the years, have moved very strongly into the Ohio Valley. They're building a a fort at Pittsburgh called Fort Duquesne, which is great stone ramparts mm-hmm. and and cannon on them, not not just some little palisade in the woods, which is essentially what Fort Necessity is, but a big place. They sent fifteen hundred militiamen, they conscripted and them, sent them off to the site of Pittsburgh, way out in the in the woods, to build this European stone fort. So Washington is knows that he's facing these growing French forces not very far away, and he holds up in Fort Necessity. And in a couple of months, Jumonville's brother, who's also an officer in the, in the French colonial regular troops, uh, Coulon de Villiers, uh, Coulon de Jumonville is killed. And that's why the place is named for him, actually, Jumonville Glen, where he dies. And his brother, Coulon de Villiers, pulls together a force from, from Fort Duquesne, Pittsburgh, races south and besieges Washington in his little palisaded fort, Fort Necessity, in in this meadow in the woods. And Washington is forced to surrender quite promptly. He just can't stand up against a well-organized force of New France that's come rolling over him uh, to seek revenge. And he not only is captured and forced to surrender, but Coulon de Villiers makes him sign a document and there's some uncertainty about it. he He gets a translation, but whether it's clear, but the, the French text that he signs says he confesses to the murder of yes. Jumonville and his men. L'assassinat de Jumonville is, is the text in French. And later, Virginia and the British will say, well, it wasn't murder, and he didn't admit to murder. And the French say, well, look, he, he got a translation of the text, and then he signed it. But he, he was under duress. They obviously—they captured him. Uh, but it showed how personal it was.
0: It showed how personal it was. The brother, the brother comes back to avenge his, uh, yeah. his his brother's death.
1: And this little skirmish in the, in the woods of, uh, of western Pennsylvania involving, you know, about 30 or so men on either side— becomes a cause celebrity in the courts of London and Versailles. The the, the French waive this confession by this obscure unknown colonial officer called Washington <laughs> Who's admitted to assassinating a French officer, a servant of King Louis XV, in cold blood in peacetime.
0: Now, Christopher, this uh, slaughter at Fort Necessity happens a few weeks after the Jumonville is killed, and things really unravel. I mean, the reality is here that the British Empire is attacking, isn't it? I mean, the British Empire starts to seize ships on the high seas, French ships, and from that small confrontation, we have the seeds of a world war. That will pit France and Britain. I mean, that rivalry had always been simmering, of course. But now this is war. This is war in the new lands in North America, but it's also in Europe. And it's in India, and it's in Af- West Africa, and it's everywhere. This launches a terrible war. You have a whole series of alliances being created. England will ally itself with Prussia. France will ally itself with Austria. Strange bedfellows, but it when war, it works. And from there, we have fateful events. Britain does an extraordinary thing in the middle of the
1: 1750s. They get a a young, brilliant prime minister called William Pitt who takes charge of the government and essentially gets the king on his side because the king is not a just a figurehead at this point. And he decides that Britain's policy is they'll pay the Prussians to fight the land war in Europe. They're not going to send... British troops into the endless sieges and battles and marches on, on the French and German on the continent of Europe. They'll let the Prussians handle the, the battles in, in, on the continent of Europe. And Frederick the Great gets his name, the Great, because he's commanding the Prussian forces and he's a brilliant general in uh, Europe. And Pitt's strategy is the Prussians will fight the French on the continent We've got this Navy. We'll send our forces everywhere in the world where we have a colony and the French have a colony and we'll take every single colony we can take. So they fight this war in India. They fight it in the Caribbean. They fight it in in Pennsylvania and North America. And the war goes terribly for Britain initially. This is a tremendous mm-hmm. challenge they're taking on and they struggle and they fail. And in fact, in the same way that Washington is is captured and humiliated out in Pennsylvania, the British fail and fail and fail in all their early attacks on New France. But Britain is just a richer, more prosperous society, and they've got a tax system that they can actually afford to keep paying for the war, Mm -hmm. and they just keep hammering away and hammering it away. It's a great war of attrition in New France and in India and in the Caribbean. And essentially, they, they capture almost all of the French colonies outside of Europe, and that puts... Britain on the on the road to being the worldwide empire. They're going to colonize the whole world for the next 100 years or so. Yeah. It
0: really does establish their presence, doesn't it?
1: Absolutely. And and so the this little skirmish at Jumonville Glen between, you know, 30 or so militiamen from New France and 30 or so militiamen from Virginia, it's the spark that launches that war. But it was going to happen anyway. The plans were being
0: laid. To- and again, to remind our listeners, I mean, it, things do unravel. The, the British will attack Acadia the following year. The Acadians will be removed from their lands in 1755 1756 louisbourg will fall a few years later and and uh, quebec of course will fall in in 1759
1: we sometimes have the impression that the uh, the war of the conquest or the fall of new france was you know a 15-minute exchange of uh, artillery fire on the plains of Abraham and Wolfe died and Montcalm died and that was kind of the end of it. In fact, this war ground on from from 1754 into into 1760. And and one of the really, if you look at it closely, is the what a grinding at war it was for the 60,000 people of New France all of the men are conscripted into the troops to, into the militia to serve the women and the old people have to try to get in the crops the, they start having crop shortages a tremendous strain people people uh, there begins to be smallpox because people are not well fed and they're overstressed and and so there's tremendous civilian casualties, militia casualties. Eventually, the Wolf's Army is marching along the St. Lawrence, burning houses and, and, and expropriating all the crops. It's not just a, a little skirmish between some redcoats and some white coats on the Plains of Abraham. This was a grim, grim struggle for the
0: people of New France. And yet, it wasn't all about us. It was also about a whole bunch of other parts in the world.
1: It, this was this was one skirmish, and in fact, you know, Britain had by the, in the Seven Years' War, they had twenty thousand soldiers in, fighting New France, which was a large part of the British regular army. They had.
0: Well, uh, I mean, compared to the population of New France, which was, as you say, sixty thousand. Yeah, I mean, that's a third. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And then they had 20,000 American yeah. militiamen and at least 20,000 naval people. They had as many people tied up trying to conquer this small colony on the St. Lawrence called New France. So that from the point of view of the French king, New France was doing a great job of tying up British forces. It was not good for the people of New France, but uh, that's the way wars are fought.
0: Well, it starts with a spark. Thank you, Christopher, for this uh, special findings and for taking the time to talk about the uh, the massacre at Jumonville with me today. It's been just a pleasure, Patrice. I was speaking with Christopher Moore. He's a regular contributor to Canada's History magazine, and his History News is without a doubt the best and most followed blog on Canadian history. The casualty list of the Jumonville massacre can be found on the Champlain Society's website under the Findings section. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca, where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's history. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University. It was recorded on December 14th, 2018 and produced by Heather Go and Lily Robbins. Thank you, everybody. See you next time.